Well, good day, everyone. Great to see you uh, this morning. Uh, hope you're in good spirits. Uh, I'm. I've been a bit under the weather all week, and the outcome of that is I have a few balance issues. I think I've got an ear problem. So if I fall over during the sermon, it's okay. I'll, I'll get back up and I'll keep going. I could talk underwater anyway. So. Uh, my name is Joe. I'm the senior minister. Those who are new today, very glad you're here with us uh, for the last week in a sermon series on uh, making disciples from the Great Commission. Uh, let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word that's sharp and challenging and cuts through to divide soul and spirit. Please speak to us now. Challenge our preconceptions, give us confidence uh, in your work and help us to understand what it means that you're with us and to take courage from that. Amen. Well, I want to start by asking you a question. Uh, do you think that the task of making disciples, as Jesus has sent us to do, is harder now than it's ever been? Is it, is it harder now or is it easier or is it about the same? Who reckons it's harder now than it was before, whenever before was. Who reckons that? A few people? Okay, alright. Who reckons it's easier? Uh, who reckons it's exactly the same? Doesn't matter. Who doesn't even know what I mean? Yeah, right, okay, alright. Uh, <laughs> um, I think a lot of Christians around that I've, that I've spoken to, not so much from this church, but in other churches, because uh, I meet a lot of people of different things, many people feel like it is way harder than it has been maybe, say, 50 years ago. Uh, that's a pretty normal way I hear Christians thinking these days. Certainly things are changing uh, in the social and cultural landscape. Western culture has by and large walked away from God uh, since the 1800s. As, and as we move towards the uh, third decade, we're, we're nearly there, of the 21st century, it seems like Australia really has become openly hostile uh, towards Christianity and the churches and so we find ourselves more and more out of step with the world and with our society. Uh, we, our values are different. Our sense of morality is different. Uh, and the hammer blows keep raining down, telling us that our opinions are outdated and really have no place anymore in this modern and civilised, enlightened world. So much so that we can feel like outsiders uh, in our own community where we once enjoyed feeling right at home. Uh, we're fighting to have space to speak in schools and in the media. Uh, the recent Royal Commission has only served to add fuel to the fire, which was already raging. You know, we're seeing uh, you know, uh, same-sex marriage and abortion and all kinds of issues that uh, actually the, the tide's turned and no longer do we think Christianly as a nation about it, uh, whether we were Christian at all before when we did think it, but, um, but it's all turned. And it's possible, with all that kind of stuff going on, to hear Jesus' great commission and think, well, Jesus, if you had known how hard it was going to be for us, how hard we were going to face you know, the opposition in society, if you'd known what it was going to be like in the 21st century in Australia, that you would never have given us that job back there on the mountain. And surely, Jesus, you'd understand why we just can't do it, and we're not going to. <laughs> and even with all the encouragement of the last two months as we've broken down the Great Commission and thought about why it matters so much and even thought about the fact that there's actually some really terribly easy and wonderful steps we can take to do it as we engage and evangelise and establish and equip, and even as we've discovered that, that, that actually the most powerful things in the hands of God are not techniques, 
uh, and knowledge and social standing and spiritual giftedness, but rather things like having good motives and, and relating well to people with a genuine love for them, even with all that, you may still be here today and feel like what Jesus is asking is just too hard, it's too much, and you're not the man for the job or you're not the woman for the job. Anyone feel like that? Anyone want to add to that? <laughs> well, can I say you're not alone? I think those feelings have been felt by virtually every man or woman of God from time to time at least over the centuries. The Apostle Paul even, as he writes to the churches, says, pray for me that I might have courage to speak as I should. You know, even the, one of the apostles says, I, you know, what do you ask people to pray for your courage? Because you're scared, right? Um, and I bet even the other apostles standing on the mountain that day when Jesus spoke to them and gave them that mission had exactly the same sorts of feelings. And so I wondered if it might be terribly helpful today for us to see the example of a man who was called by God to do what, humanly speaking, looked impossible and who gulped when he was told what he had to do. And then he said to God, no way, Jose, <laughs> I'm not doing that. I mean, we could have picked on a number of people, right? Jonah, uh, Jeremiah had the same thoughts. Ezekiel, from part of his ministry, went, really, God? I'm not sure I want to do that. Um, the example I've got in mind is Moses. Uh, who was completely intimidated and daunted by the mission God gave him, and he desperately hoped that he might be able to give enough excuses to God uh, to be able to argue his way out of doing it. Now, granted, the mission that God gave to Moses was a bit different to the mission that he's given to us. But let me ask you, which one would you rather do? Go and rescue two million people from slavery in Egypt on the other side of a desert? <laughs> Uh, from the hands of the most powerful superpower in the uh, in the world at the time, with no army at your back, or would you rather go and tell someone about Jesus? Which, yeah, you know, uh, maybe some of you are thinking, mm, actually, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> Moses, that was pretty easy. <laughs> so God had come to Moses on a different mountain to the one that Jesus would later speak to the disciples of. He came to Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, uh, and he appeared to Moses in a burning bush, and he said to him. The cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you, Moses, to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And no sooner had God spoken that word, that mission for him, than all sorts of terrible thoughts started to crowd through Moses' mind. Uh, I mean, we think we have obstacles to the gospel, right? But think about Moses. Not only does he have to walk back through a whopping great desert to get to this country that he's being sent to, he might be thinking, what am I going to do with all these flocks of sheep that I've brought with me? <laughs> Who's going to look after them? Uh, not, he's got to confront the most powerful man in the world at the height of his power, backed by the greatest army that had ever existed, uh, with court magicians and wise men in front of all those kind of powerful people. Um, but worse... He was wanted for murder in that country too, you might remember, uh, which is why he had to flee in the first place. And then worse again, his own people, the ones he was being sent to save, had already turned on him and rejected him and despised him and said, who made you judge over us? We don't, we don't want you. They don't want Moses' help. So what does Moses do when God gives him this momentous task? He's like, yes, 
Let's go get him. <laughs> no. No, he whinges and he whines and he comes up with every excuse under the sun to get out of doing it. In fact, I reckon through that bit that James read, he had five different goes at it. Five different goes. Uh, first go, chapter 3, verse 11. He says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Of all the people in the world, of all the beings of Israelites, why, why me, God? <laughs> you know, why would you send me? I'm a nobody. I've got nothing. I'm not even there. You know, they, they're hanging out there. They can do it. The second excuse, verse 13. But what if I go to them and say to the Israelites, God sent me to save you? And they say, who sent you? Which God? You know, is it Ra? Is it Isis? Is it which, which God did you say? <laughs> I won't know what to say. So I can't possibly go. His third excuse is in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. But what if I tell them the answer you just gave me and they say, well, they don't believe me. And they go, oh, yeah, as if God showed up to you and talked to you. <laughs> yeah, good one. Uh, you're just making this whole God stuff up. I can't, I can't possibly go, God. His fourth excuse, chapter 4, verse 10. Oh, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue which is a pretty fancy way of saying, I don't talk real good. <laughs> they didn't learn me good at school or something. <laughs> I mean, he's doing all right handling himself arguing with God. But anyway, that, uh, but what's he saying to God? He said, God, actually, you've made a really bad choice in picking me. Uh, it's not just that I'm a nobody, but actually I'm, I'm not personally gifted or equipped for a mission like that. I'm just not up to the task. You wouldn't want a dum-dum like me to speak for you, God. I'm not just going to mess it up. No one's going to get saved. It'll be hopeless. And the fifth go, well, it is, isn't even an excuse. It's just a pathetic little whine in verse 13. Oh, Lord, please just send someone else. And I don't know about you, but I find that so helpful that even the greatest leader of God's people in the Old Testament had such serious misgivings about what God had told him to do that he'd try and weasel his way out of it like that. And I think it's even more helpful when we start to reflect on what our own excuses might be and discover they're pretty much the same as his, right? <laughs> Why would God want to send someone like me? I'm just a nobody. That, they won't believe in this God who I'm saying sent me? You know, what if they don't believe me when I speak about Jesus? I, I won't be any good at it anyway. Um, so God, please just send someone else instead. I mean, isn't that how we feel? I felt like that um, uh, and still feel like that from time to time. And, and uh, do you? No. Well, what's God going to say in response to all these complaints and excuses from Moses? He's going to go, ah, oh, Ah, oh, yeah, good points, Moses. Fair enough. Ah, oh, I really didn't think this out, did I? Ah, oh, who else could I send? Uh, maybe, maybe we shouldn't do this mission. Uh, he doesn't do that. Instead, he, he very patiently and very kindly answers every single excuse that Moses has. And he offers him, you know, uh, equipment, you know, a magic staff and a, a weird hand trick. And, uh, he gives him, he gives him an assistant minister, you know, uh, Aaron. <laughs> so, let him do a talking. You, you, you be, you be Aaron's speechwriter. Um, 
Dave said to me last weekend, he did five of my talks uh, last weekend, he said, you can be my speechwriter from now on. I'm thinking, all right, excellent. <laughs> um, uh, but of all the things that God says in reply, surely the greatest and most profound answer from God, which ought to have stopped Moses right in his tracks and given him all the confidence in the world to, to go and do what he was told, comes right after his very first excuse. So there, come back to chapter 3 and verse 11. You got it there? But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. That's God's answer. Got nothing to do with Moses. <laughs> Have you ever thought about it? It's a pretty strange kind of answer. I mean, if God were a modern-day motivational speaker, if he was Anthony Robbins, if God was Anthony Robbins, <laughs> uh, he wouldn't have said that, would he? Oh, it's all right, I'm with you. <laughs> what he'd have done is one of two things, or perhaps both. This is what motivational speeches are about. You know, he'd either have given Moses a stirring vision and a program and the steps to do it, right? Uh, or he'd uh, try and give Moses a bit of affirmation. You know, boost his ego a bit. Then, you know, you are the man. But that's not what God does. Who am I? God's answer, I will be with you. I mean, imagine if God did start down the kind of motivational speaker route with Moses, you know, trying to set the vision. And Moses, don't you have a heart for the lost in Egypt? You know, don't you realize that they need a savior? They need you, man. And it won't be that hard. I've got this 10 step plan, actually. Uh, 10 plague plan, uh, for you to follow. And, and, and I can flowchart it if you like. We can do some brainstorming. And, and I'm confident that even someone like you is going to be able to pull it off, right? Even with your little speech problem. Um, or imagine if God went down the affirmation route. Moses, Moses, don't you realize? Don't you realize you are the best ever equipped person in history, uh, to be able to pull off this particular mission you know don't you realize that you, you are amazing you're the man you think about it you've got 40 years of training in pharaoh's personal household you're brought up you know the man uh no one else has got that you don't understand court politics you know the ins and outs you know how to get into the castle you know you know who's who how to get in there and get an audience you yeah you, know, you speak two languages you know you speak hebrew and egyptian um and, and on top of that, Moses, you've got 40 years of wilderness experience in the desert. And, and, and the people are, you're going to, the people are going to need that because, because you've been there and you're going to be leading them back through that desert. Uh, and no one else has got all that. No one in the world. You are the man, Moses. You're the one. Ah, if it's going to trust someone, it'd be you. But God doesn't do that. He didn't touch it. Who am I? God just says, I will be with you. And that's all Moses really should have needed to know. And maybe we want God to jolly us along with a bit of a motivational speech and, you know, a bit of vision planning and, you know, better strategy or, or some affirmation to make us feel good about ourselves and feel like we really are special and the one. But God actually gives us something far better than that. He promises his presence. 
And it's interesting because it's exactly the same thing that Jesus Christ says to his disciples on that other mountain that day in Galilee after he rose from the dead. The Great Commission, there's no motivational speech. There's no ego-rubbing affirmation to jolly them along. You guys, I, I handpicked the 12 of you. You're amazing. Well, maybe one of you not so much, but, <laughs> but, but the rest of you, you're amazing. You know, you're the best people on earth. I think of the training I've put into you over three years. You can do it. But he doesn't do that. He said the same thing to them that God said to Moses. I will be with you. In fact, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. The very same thing he says to us. Go, make disciples, and I will be with you. As far as Jesus is concerned, that's the one and only thing we really, really need. But why is that? Why should that help us? Why is that what Moses needed to hear? Why is that what the apostles needed to hear? And why is that the word we need to hear from Jesus? Why is that Jesus' word of encouragement to us? How does, how does it even work anyway? And what does he mean? We need to think about it because I think it's a little bit strange to our ears. I mean, I even asked Andrew White, who's been a Christian a long time. He's a Bible study leader in our church and an occasional lay preacher. I said, what does it mean when Jesus says he's going to be with you? He said, never thought about it. <laughs> um, and, and I think it might sound to us a bit like Obi-Wan Kenobi at the end of the first Star Wars movie, the original Star Wars movie. You know, spoiler alert, Obi-Wan Kenobi died at the hand of Darth Vader, right? Got struck down by a lot of stuff. Anyway, but... You know, later in the space battle at the end, the trench battle, Luke keeps hearing his voice in his head. You know, Turn off the targeting computer, Luke. Trust your instincts. The force will be with you always. You know, so, um, is that what Jesus is promising, that you'll get some vague and even counterintuitive tidbits of advice when you're angry or scared or alone? Is he going to be a voice inside telling you to trust yourself? Or is he promising to be uh, like the dad who stands on the sideline of your soccer match, you know, providing a sort of comforting familiarity, although he's not on the field, while he's yelling sage advice that everyone in their right mind should listen to, right? Watch out behind you! <laughs> Come on, ref! What do you think you're doing? <laughs> or is Jesus just saying, you know, what, what our friends say to us when we go for a job interview, uh, I'll be thinking of you while you're in there, right? Is it, which is you know, a nice thing to say, I suppose, but oh, it doesn't even tell you what they're thinking about us. They might be thinking, hope you didn't get that job. <laughs> Loser. <No. laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a fairly meaningless statement. I mean, a bit better, I'll be praying for you while you're in there. But, but it's really none of those things, actually. So what is Jesus promising when he says, I'll be with you? I think in part, and this is where most Christians want to go with it, that it's a reflection back to another promise that Jesus gave on various other occasions, that he would come and dwell inside each and every one of us by his Holy Spirit. That, that's certainly true. The Holy Spirit's not just an idea. The Holy Spirit is real. He's the third person of the Trinity, personal. Uh, he is God with us. Uh, and he gives us a personal connection to our Heavenly Father right now. Uh, he, his work in us is to, is to purify us um, in our own discipleship as he takes us back to Jesus 
and to the cross. Uh, and then he molds and shapes us to live God's way and be more and more fit for God's purposes as we, as we engage with God's word, which is, which is the sword of the spirit, right? This is, this is how the Holy Spirit primarily does his work in us in molding and shaping us. And there's a couple of particular aspects to Jesus' promises about the Holy Spirit, which particularly impact on evangelism and discipling others, that I think uh, a lot of Christians would want to run to. Uh, for instance, in John 14, 26, Jesus promises, when the Holy Spirit comes, uh, he will teach you all things and he'll remind you of everything I've said to you. Now, that's a tremendous promise. It's, it's wonderfully comforting. And I think one that's particularly necessary for the apostles, which gives us great confidence that the gospels, the, you know, the, the biographies of Jesus in the Bible are, are really accurate accounts of what Jesus said and did because God was personally at work in them to recall exactly what happened. It wasn't like, you know, did, you know, they weren't going, did Jesus really heal that guy or was that the one where he kicked the guy on the ground and, you know, uh, no, they got it right. <laughs> And, and I think by extension, God is with us, reminding us and encouraging us with, with the truth that we already know. That's, that's the Spirit's work, to remind us of the truth that we already know. But then there's Jesus' promise in Matthew chapter 10. We saw a few weeks ago when Jesus says, when you're arrested and brought before governors and kings, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, it will be given you what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you you and i think there's tremendous comfort in that too isn't it that in moments of extreme pressure when you'll be tempted to cave in and deny jesus deny your faith god is going to help you he's going to be there and stand with you and he'll use you now i don't think he's saying don't prepare ahead of time and there's no point planning i mean someone once said to me i don't know why you bother even writing sermons just just stand up and the spirit will use you Right? <laughs> He's not saying don't pre-plan or think about, you know, the reason for the hope you have and all the other things that the Bible tells us to do. But it is good to know that he'll be there giving you what you need at the time. Right? Particularly reminding you of the, the truth that you've already aware of and come to believe. That's wonderful, isn't it? But when Jesus says, I'll be with you, I think it actually means something even greater and more profound than that, if there can be said. I mean, the whole God living with us is an amazing thing by the Holy Spirit moulding us. But I think there's something even greater and more profound when Jesus says it here. It's the exact same thing and reason that God said it to Moses, and it's the exact same thing that we need to hear and take to heart if we're really going to do this great work of disciple-making that Jesus has called us to do. And that is this. That when you go about the work of making disciples... As you share the gospel and you show what God is like and, and you call people to repent and believe the good news, here's what he's saying. It's not actually you that's going to be changing people. It's not you by the power of your words or the charm of your personality or the strength of your character or by the skill of your oratory or by the learnedness of your answers. No matter how phenomenally good you are at those things, you simply do not have the power within you to change people spiritually, fundamentally, 
you can't change hearts. You can do a good job, but you can't change hearts. Only God can do that. And what Jesus is promising to us is that as you open your mouth to speak about him, he's actually going to be right there too doing the real work, the work of people's hearts and changing them. He'll be right there actively saving. He'll be doing his work even as we speak. Or or think about it like this. When God calls us to be his fellow workers, which he does lots of times in the New Testament, it's not like he's an absentee boss who's got lots of money and can employ his minions to send off to all the work sites so he doesn't have to be there, right? No, he's there shoulder to shoulder. He's doing the heavy lifting. He's doing the real work of changing lives and hearts as we love people and speak to them about their greatest need and about our most wonderful saviour and call them to respond. I mean, think about Moses on his mission. Who was it that turned Moses' staff into a snake and back again? Who was it that made Moses' hand leprous as he stuck it in the cloak and pulled it out and fixed it again? Who was it that turned the water into blood? Who was it that was going to bring all the terrible plagues on Egypt? None of it was Moses. He didn't have a hand. Well, he had a hand, turned leprous, but (laughs) he didn't cause any of it. It was God. God was there with him, doing it. Moses spoke. God acted. And that's what Jesus means when he says he'll be with us. And he'll never stop being with us, even to the very end of the age. Isn't that magnificent? Isn't that a tremendous thing? And it's a particularly tremendous thing because it has some profound and wonderful implications as we think about making disciples in today's world, in the midst of our changing social culture, and and I think specifically for us right now, as as we head into Easter uh, and then into Term 2 with our focus on evangelism, uh, and I just want to draw three implications uh, just as we finish. The first implication is about how we think about the obstacles that we currently face in mission. We might be tempted to think that because of the radical social changes Australia's undergoing, that disciple-making is the hardest it's ever been, that we've got it tougher than anyone else in all of history, and even if we don't think about the history of the world because there were some pretty dark times there, uh, at least in the history of Australia. Really? It's just simply not true. When you think about Richard Johnson, the first chaplain, you know, very few Christians in the colony, and who's he speaking to? A bunch of convicts and a bunch of hardened soldiers and a bunch of Aboriginals who don't speak English and he doesn't speak their language and and he sees all sorts of them become Christians, right? Um, you think about all the different periods. Uh, it's just simply not true. Yes, there is public resentment to Christianity. Yes, Scripture is being pushed further and further to the fringe of the schools and may one day leave. Yes, there are attacks in the media. Yes, churches are being stripped of some of the social privileges that we've once enjoyed. And yes, the ethical stances that we might take might make us seem like moral outlaws in other people's eyes. All those things are true. But none of that means that disciple-making is any more difficult than it's ever been before. In fact, it's exactly the same difficulty as it's ever been before in the history of this country 
and even in the history of the world. And that's because of what we've just seen, that, that for someone to become a Christian or become a disciple or grow as a disciple, it always requires supernatural change. Becoming a Christian is not a natural thing that people do. It is a supernatural thing that God does. It's always been a supernatural thing. And because it's a supernatural thing, it's something only he is able to do in people. You think of descriptions uh, in places like Ephesians chapter 2, where God says that anyone without Christ is dead in their sins and transgressions. Dead. Lifeless. Corpses. Utterly dead. And their only hope is that God resurrect them, which he does as they hear the gospel. As a visiting speaker I heard last week said, whenever we share the gospel with anyone, we're evangelizing the graveyard. And I don't know if you've ever tried to go into a graveyard, maybe with a whiteboard and say, well, we've got this great vision of church and uh, let me draw the 10-step plan. He's engaged, evangelized. Where are you up to? Yeah, sorry. Let me help identify. Right. No matter what you say, they aren't getting up out of the graves, right, for you, All right. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> Some fun. You go to church. Oh, wow, I'm going to come. We're evangelizing the graveyard. There's never been a time or a culture when it was natural for dead people just to spontaneously come back to life. Just as it's never been natural for people to repent of their sins or to turn to Christ or to believe and be saved. All the different ways the Bible speaks about the very same thing. It wasn't natural in the 1950s. It wasn't natural in the 1920s. It wasn't, it's still not natural now. It's exactly the same as it's ever been before. And because of all that, all the social and cultural changes that we're facing have made our job exactly 0% harder. You've got to keep that in mind. Disciple making day is exactly 0% harder than any other time in human history. Yes, we've got different challenges and obstacles that we need to negotiate, but Jesus is with us. He's doing his supernatural work of raising the dead and opening blind eyes and dropping the veil and calling them into his kingdom as we speak. The second implication is that it really doesn't matter how good or how gifted you think you are at disciple-making, does it? What really matters is who's with you, right? And I'm not talking about Aaron or even David, but uh, it, it matters that Jesus is with you and it's his work that we're doing. I'm not saying don't try and get better at it. We should all try and want to be, grow and be the most useful servants of God that we can. I'm simply saying we don't have to worry about comparing ourselves to other people or thinking, you know, because I don't have this particular spiritual gift or I haven't risen to that level of competence or I haven't got the answers to all of these kind of questions over here right at hand that, that I can't be useful in God's hand. I mean, look what God did through Moses. The Moses who couldn't talk real good, uh, thought he wasn't up to the job. Didn't matter. Why? Because God was with him. And God was going to do all this stuff. He was just a spokesman. And he's with us. 
The third and final implication is I think we can have an ever-increasing confidence and joy in doing this work that God's left for us to do on this earth. We've got the confidence and joy of knowing God is doing his work through us, that he's doing all the heavy lifting. We have confidence and joy because we know we have a a beautiful world to inherit uh, and so we can afford to be completely generous and to love others with everything that we have and, and even share this greatest treasure that we have within, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the thing that everybody needs, the most precious thing. We can have the confidence and joy um, because, uh, as we've seen right through history, in God's wisdom, it's the times of the most opposition and persecution have also become the times of the, the greatest times of people turning to Jesus, which means I think we're actually getting to a very exciting time uh, for the gospel. I mean, you think back 20 years, uh, we didn't talk about Jesus and it was all just no one talked about it and people smile politely and so on. Now you can have conversations. It's not hard. It's easy and you might, might be an argument, but, it, but it's, it's on the agenda. It's fantastic. And we can have the confidence of, and the joy of knowing the certainty of Christ's victory. Jesus is Lord. He is the one who has received all authority in heaven and earth. He is the judge of the living and the dead. And not even the gates of hell shall prevail against Christ and his kingdom. And all of that means we need not fear and tremble as if Satan has finally, after all these millennia, somehow gotten the upper hand on God through this master stroke of same-sex marriage. All right, or the sexual revolution, uh, or you know the LGBTI community, or scripture in schools being on the edge, or that's just not true at all. Satan does not have the upper hand now any more than he's ever done before. Every nation and age expresses its depravity and attacks God in its own way, but none are going to succeed any more than the crucifixion succeeded in defeating Jesus. How did that master stroke of satanic opposition and depravity go, eh? Hey? Hey? Jesus died. Yeah, but that's where he won, right? That's where he bought salvation. And three days later, what happened? He was back from the dead. He won the war. Christ's kingdom is not in danger of falling. And I think we have to know that deep within our bones. And not one person who God has elected to be saved will fail to be saved because of the secular agenda. Jesus is with us. What did he say in John 6.39? I shall lose how many? None. None. None that the Father has given me. There shouldn't be any worry or anxiety or desperation in us. Urgency, yes, because... Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's favour. We're in the armistice and there is a final date. Jesus is coming back and so we've got to be urgent. But but don't worry or be anxious. We might not be able to out-argue others. They may not be persuaded, at least initially, by our T-shirts or by our lunchtime conversations or by our Facebook posts or, dare I say, by our sermons. Uh, our pride may be damaged as we don't enjoy the same respect our parents and grandparents enjoyed because they were connected to the Church of England. Um, 
But we can love the non-Christians around us with the same supernatural love that God has shown to us in Christ. And we can make known his word today with humility and confidence and joy. And we can trust that God is sovereign and he will work his work even today as we go with his message and the world again realises just how different Christianity really is. Jesus is with us. And so we can go in confidence and joy about his business of making disciples, calling people to leave their rebellion against God, to lay down their arms and surrender and come to find peace in the death and resurrection of the Saviour, the one who died for them and was raised, the one who is the Lord of heaven and earth, Jesus, the very one who has sent us, who is the very same one who is with us always, even to the very end of the age. Go make disciples. He's with you. Father, these are challenging words we've heard this time, term, but thank you for the joy and the confidence of knowing that you are the one who does the real work in people. Uh, you use uh, people like us who are sometimes proud of our own abilities and sometimes very, very sceptical of our own selves and abilities. But Father, it doesn't matter what we're like uh, other than to go with good motives and, and love for people. Thank you that you promised to do your work and thank you that you are saving lives today as you have in every age. Please give us the joy of seeing many more come to know Christ. As we stand for you, as we go and make disciples, Father, please turn this community around, this nation around, this world around. Send out your people, raise up more workers for the harvest. Father, we pray for our missionaries that you would strengthen them. And we pray that you'll help us as your missionaries to be courageous, to love uh, and to be patient and prayerful as we proclaim your word and live such good lives that those around us might see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. Father, thank you for this amazing promise. Amen.